Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. You can sharpen your cooking skills and please your palate just by staying tuned this hour. Because we're going way beyond mere eating and drinking. Every Sunday, I celebrate food and life by teaching you all about the culinary scene around the world. Every Sunday, you'll hear from chefs and artisans, farmers and authors, travel experts, fitness experts, sommeliers and tastemakers, all of whom are passionate about everything delicious. It's my goal to feed your soul, so I hope you'll stay tuned for delicious conversation. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, where you can also find podcasts of shows you might have missed, and you can find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So I hope that you are embracing the fall season, although in some parts of the country, especially where I live, it hasn't cooled down quite yet. But to me, mashed potatoes are quintessential autumn, not to mention a Thanksgiving essential and one of the most comforting side dishes of all time. Wouldn't you agree? I think that they are necessary for soaking up all the goodness on a plate, like the delicious gravy or the juice from the roasted chicken. And it's a simple dish with few ingredients, but take any number of missteps and you will find yourself with gluey, unappetizing mashed potatoes, far from the fluffy mash that you imagined. While they look deceptively simple... I believe that mashed potatoes are an art to master. So whether you like yours super smooth or buttery or even rustic and chunky, because everyone seems to have their favorite way of making mashed potatoes, I want to make sure that you're doing it right. And it's never too early in the season for a refresher or a lesson in mashed potatoes. So here's the lowdown on glorious spuds. Great mashed potatoes, in my humble culinary opinion, are all about choosing the potato. When it comes to choosing a potato, starchy russets, the brown potatoes, or traditional baking potatoes, as they're often called, do give the best fluffy texture. But my favorite is still the Yukon Gold. It's that buttery, yellow in color potato, and I think they work really equally well for mashing. Now, here are a few quick tips that you should always keep in mind, no matter which potato you're using. It is really important that your dairy is warm before you add it to your mash. And equally important, I suggest you add the butter first. Now, I cook the potatoes and the cooking process I like is to start the potatoes in cold water so that they come up to temperature with the water and they cook evenly. And I cook my potatoes, no matter what varietal, whole as I feel they don't really absorb as much water that way and they tend to retain their flavor. Now, when it comes to the liquid, as I mentioned, it should always be warm. But once the potatoes are cooked and if you choose to peel them, you add the butter first, almost to gloss the potatoes with a little bit of fat and uh, fill up the pores. And then I would consider that you use 
really good quality dairy. Now, I happen to like half and half because it has a lesser water content and it combines with the starch molecules and you get a creamier potato. The use of, let's say, um, whole milk or even skim milk tends to and can often make the potatoes gluey. So consider the fat content of your dairy and of course use really good quality unsalted butter. And then you'll add that warm liquid to the buttery cooked potatoes. And then for the best texture, I think a food mill or a ricer creates the ultimate consistency when it comes to a great mashed potato. You can use a potato masher and some serious elbow grease. You will get a really good bicep workout. You can also use a stand mixer like your KitchenAid on low speed. Some great cooks, by the way, will disagree here, um, but I'm fine with a stand mixer as long as you don't overmix. But please do not use your food processor. Potatoes in a food processor intended for mashed potatoes, you are guaranteed to get gummy, gluey, overmixed mess. And then a few more chef's tips, if you don't mind. You can make your mashed potatoes in advance of serving, and this is a great Thanksgiving tip. If it's just an hour or so before you're serving the mashed potatoes, I suggest that you put them in a glass mixing bowl and you cover the bowl with plastic wrap. This is a great restaurant tip. And you place the bowl over a pot of very gently simmering water, also called a bain-marie, to keep them warm. Now, if your mashed potatoes have been refrigerated, let's say you made them the day before the holiday or a big Sunday supper, the best way to reheat them is actually to place them in a low oven covered. It takes about 20 minutes and I would say 325 Fahrenheit at most. And I add a little bit more uh, half and half or heavy cream just to better the texture. And then if you're looking for a shortcut to mashed potatoes, like I've made you crave mashed potatoes and you just have to have them for dinner tonight, well, then you can always roast like baby ruby red potatoes with their skin on at 400 degrees until they're tender. I like to roast potatoes at higher heat. Then smash them with a potato masher or a wooden spoon, and then stir in a big dollop of sour cream or creme fraiche with just a, you know, a bit of half and half or cream and some freshly chopped herbs from the garden. And you have a really wonderful rustic mashed potato side dish without all the fuss of perfect mashed potatoes. I happen to love the skins in there because it does create great texture and it really adds to the flavor. And you are no doubt uh, maintaining some of the nutrients too. So it's a win-win all the way around. Now, let's say you want to put a new spin on the holiday staple that is mashed potatoes. I have a few inventive twists for you. You follow the basic recipe for my very best mashed potatoes, by the way, posted at chefjamie.com. They are incredibly smooth and very flavorful, and uh, they are actually made with pureed garlic cloves that cook in the water with the potatoes, so you get this subtle garlic flavor that permeates all the way through, and they're rich and delicious. But let's say you want to make them cheesy. Well, if you like tangy flavors, you can stir in some crumbled goat cheese. If you like ultimate 
rich intensity. You can always stir in some cream cheese or even brie cheese until it melts throughout. And for those sharp palates, maybe grated Swiss or cheddar. Now, if you happen to have a spicy palate, consider throwing in some chopped chilies or even the fire-roasted diced kind or even some chipotles in adobo sauce. For a Spanish flavor, I love to add in smoked paprika and some freshly chopped chives to a bash of mashed potatoes. And then um, for the herby kind, have you ever stirred in pesto and grated Parmesan? Oh, it's so good. And then lastly, for a little bit of crunch, there's nothing better than bacon mashed potatoes cooked and crumbled and stirred in. It's a meal in and of itself. Once again, you'll find my very best mashed potatoes recipe posted at chefjamie.com. And I'd love to know what add-in or topping makes your mashed potatoes the ultimate. You can email me anytime. Jamie at chefjamie.com will get you to me. Okay, it's time for some food news that you can use, don't you think? Well, this is actually really good news because... I have to say, uh, 2016's pumpkin spice season is off to a very strong start. And I'm sure that you're judging that just as you sip on a pumpkin spice latte. But it would be so much more delicious if you had spiked it with the new Bailey's Irish Cream release. Just this past week, Bailey's released pumpkin spice Irish cream. It's a limited edition version of the classic creamy liqueur. It's made with cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, and vanilla, and the standard Baileys that you know and love, but it has that autumnal twist. And it doesn't have an uh, an alcoholic aftertaste, I should say. It's getting really good ratings. I happen to love it in my first taste. And of course, it is the season for embracing all things pumpkin spice, right? I think the only thing better than a pumpkin spice latte might be a pumpkin spice latte that gets you buzzed, right? (laughs) You should look for pumpkin spice Bailey's Irish cream in your favorite supermarket or uh, liquor store or a wine shop and uh, do let me know how your morning latte turns out. (laughs) And don't touch your dial because there is lots more fabulous food coming up in your radio. We are dishing next with the editor-in-chief of Savour Magazine. My favorite read, Adam Sachs, is here to share some food stories. Also, winemaker Steve Peck of JLOR is celebrating Merlot Month. And our fitness expert, Lisa Lynn, before the end of the hour with some fall fitness tips. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with more delicious conversation right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as the delicious conversation continues. The fall issue of Savour Magazine has just released and it is chock full of glorious stories about the wonderful world of food, new ideas, inspiration, 
and recipes for your table. The Current Savour, the culinary publication for serious foodies, of which I am a huge fan, is all about Reuben sandwiches, the origin of wine, and oh, pan-seared chicken with Riesling cream. I can't wait to make that. Savour's editor-in-chief, Adam Sachs, is back, and he's here with Insight. Hey, Adam, glad to have you. Hi, Jamie. Glad to be here. <laughs> Congratulations. This is quite a, a wonderfully bulky issue. This was like Thank a. That my couch thought this was a really good read. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I hope the other members of the family enjoy it too. Yes. Yeah, we, you know, this is a. We, we call it our, the origins issue. So it's uh, stories about uh, the, the backgrounds and, and origin myths of a, of a bunch of different uh, food and, and food traditions. And it really was insightful. I mean, the stories bring you closer to food, in my opinion. They take you around the world. There's one thing I missed. Um, there What's was that? no letter from the editor. Ah. That would be you. And so I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> I was going to write you an individual letter from the editor. <laughs> a personal I just one. I got around to sending it. Yeah, yet. sure. Uh, but you have to tell us, because we had a very lively conversation about paella over the summer. It was the summer of paella. But now that we're um, through autumn and into fall, what are you cooking now? Well, I'm definitely getting into, yeah, it's, it's not quite cold in New York yet. but it's, yet. Uh, it's getting a little cooler. And uh, so I've been wanting to make, you know, big, big stews or big mm. uh, slow cut cuts of meat. I yes. did a um, recently I did a uh, a big pork belly that I that I roasted with a little bit of uh, gochujang and mm. some, some uh, cider and put it in the oven for a few hours and then finished it on the grill for over a little bit of uh, smoky wood for for an hour or so. Mm. Uh, that kind of thing I'm I'm definitely into. Oh, I'm, so I'm definitely ready for some in... big fall fall projects. Oh, for sure, I'm into that too. I didn't I didn't see that in the invitation for that dinner. That's weird. I guess it's with the letter. I don't know. It should be coming. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, we are gochujang crazy on the west coast as well, and I yeah, love the idea yeah. of of combining it with cider because it is cider season. Yeah, I mean that's not like it was a big plan. It's just sort of looking in the fridge and seeing mm. what's there and would add a little interesting flavor to it. Yeah, but it worked but out. With, yeah, no and with pork belly or pork shoulder, it's mm. it's sort of hard to go wrong. You know, you could add Cheerios and chocolate milk, and it's still probably be pretty good if you let it sit in a in a low oven for enough hours. Right, and then you finish it with a bunch of really delicious peach or applewood on the grill. I'd I'd eat it for sure. Yes, I, I yes. love that you are such a passionate cook. Of course, running a food magazine, um, but I'd love to kick off the conversation. And know if you have a, a similar fondness, because I'm not too proud to tell you we have an automated sushi bar where I oh, live, yeah. and I love it. Do you? I do. I like I, I, the, the chitin sushi. Yeah. Yes. Um, Lori Wolver has a short story in the in the current issue about the origins of of uh, the conveyor belt sushi, and I love it. And I guess part of what, the reason I love it is that. I've been to I've, I've been to them in Japan, and so the fact that they're there sort of legitimizes it somehow. That it's not just you know an American convenience uh, invention; that it actually comes from Japan, and, and that they love it. So I think it's really interesting, and it, and how it's uh, changed. And there, you know, now you can pay with credit cards, and there are little games involved for for you know kids there. But yeah, I I, I love a, a good conveyor belt sushi. The games are for kids. Oh, I don't know. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't know because if I eat enough, you get a toy. I happen. Oh yeah, well, you deserve a toy. <laughs> I happen to recall growing up. Um, my mom 
uh, took me and we would go often and it was very novel to something called yeah. revolving sushi and it has oh, yeah. it has definitely evolved from there because like you said it's gotten uh, very technological but i appreciate the fact in the article and as you mentioned that there there are roots to this automated sushi it's not just a a fast food concept but right. one that is really very progressive right yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a fun oh, topic. And loved it. Now I'm hungry for conveyor belts. Y- yes, as am I. Um, I loved the piece in the current issue uh, on starters, the bread kind. So I-, I would love for you to share your thoughts on the sour smelling starters that are making a comeback because that means more rye bread, right? Yeah, really rye and sourdough rye. bread and, and yeah. things that have, you know, uh, I think it's, it's all of a piece with our sort of current fascination for things that are fermented, things mm-hmm. that are sour, things that have a kind of interesting funkiness uh, built or baked into them. And um, mostly my feeling about that is that I just feel guilty and sad that I haven't started my own starters at home and that I have, you know, I don't have a, a you know, a, a sourdough starter that I go to. I've got a uh, kombucha um, thing that I'm waiting to use, but I, I wish I had more of those in my life. I love reading about them, but I need to put more of them in my actual repertoire. I'm planning to put sourdough whole wheat waffles with brandied cherries yes. into my repertoire. Does that look good? Yeah. Ooh, start branding your cherries. Yes. Start your sourdough starter. There's a wonderful piece um, that I think I loved the most of the current issue. And by the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because editor-in-chief of Savoir Magazine, Adam Sachs, is here and we're dishing on the October-November, the fall issue of Savoir. Here's the million-dollar question, Adam. Okay. Did you taste... Do I actually win a million dollars? Yes, you do. Or do I owe you a million (laughs) dollars if I get it wrong? Exactly. Okay. Did you taste test... Mitchell Davis and Laurent Gras, Pigs in a Blanket. I think you get a million dollars just for pronouncing Laurent Gras' name so well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I did. I think I, I get maybe a half, a half a million because I tried them, but I had them a day late. So I didn't get them, uh, you know, hot out of the oven. This is a story uh, that Jamie's referring to that um, Mitchell Davis, who's a great food writer and uh, an exceptional uh, home cook, yes. and Laurent Gras, who's a chef who's had uh, been at many multi-Michelin-starred restaurants, uh, took on the lowly or not so lowly mm. in their hands, uh, picking a blanket, and they kind of Franco-American chefified it a little bit. Um, and it's not like deconstructed picking a blanket with you know uh, sausage foam or anything. They just they just went back to its roots and made. They ended up culturing their own butter. They made their own dough. They made their own sausage for it, and it becomes this still very simple and homey, and kind of homely, mm. but delicious and buttery smelling uh, pig in a blanket. So I had it, but I only had it the day after, so I didn't experience the full the full pig in a blanketness. But it but it had to be oh so good. I love yeah, the I love were freaking the freaking out of the oh. about the how it smelled and how it tasted. I could imagine. I love the idea and the inspiration behind it. You might not churn your own butter, but substituting a different sausage or um, squeezing the sausage from its casing and sort of mixing it up a little bit is a testament to the fact that, you know, the classics come back and you shouldn't be too proud to serve pigs in a blanket at your next football party, especially if you're doing it in great culinary style like this. Yeah, it's something to have fun with. Yeah, well, for sure. I'd have loved to taste, uh, have tasted those. I, I do love the chicken piece as well. 
Um, but I'm, I'm such a Savore fan. There's a chicken and the egg um, argument. Well, there's no really argument there with some recipes that I alluded to. That pan-seared chicken with the Riesling cream sounds quintessential fall with chard yeah, and chanterelles. Right now, yeah. Oh, yes. It's really a fabulous issue. Kudos to you. Thank you so much. And congratulations. The wide and wonderful world of recipes and cooking, wine, and culinary arts can be found in Savore magazine. The October-November issue is on newsstands now, and it is a great read. Uh, There's more delicious conversation in your radio to inspire you right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Cheers and welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. October is National Merlot Month, as if you needed a reason to celebrate, right? So we're highlighting extraordinary talent in the wine industry today by putting a spotlight on winemaker Steve Peck. Steve is at the helm of red winemaking for Jaylor Vineyards and Wines, of which I am a great fan. And he was recently honored as Winemaker of the Year. His enthusiasm for viticulture is unparalleled. His wines, luscious and award-winning. And his style, clearly crafted. And he's here to dish. And I'm so glad to have you. Welcome back. Hi, Steve. Hello, Jamie. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great, thank you. And you're not doing so shabby. Congratulations on the recent accolades. That's quite extraordinary to be named Winemaker of the Year. Well, I never get tired of hearing that. <laughs> it, 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 I, I always feel a little awkward hearing that. But, uh, but yeah, I uh, um, really feel fortunate to be uh, sort of... Uh, identified by my peers in that way. Yes. It's it's a a great, great honor. And very well deserved. And happy Merlot month to you. Are are you celebrating every day in the vineyards or at the table? Well, uh, you know, the nice thing about Merlot is that it's typically harvested in in September. So most of the Merlot is already, you know, here in the winery for the, for the new vintage. So we're already uh, uh, able to appreciate uh, the new vintage uh, now that we're into October. Which is so nice. How was um, harvest this year? What What are you hopeful for, expecting for future the future vintage? Well, we were really lucky to have such mild weather during the last stages of ripening. Um, winemakers never like to have, uh, you know, have a hot uh, a heat spell sort of force us to play our hand. Um, we really like to be able to pick the fruit at its peak of ripeness without. Uh, concerns for sunburn or uh, you know uh, or rain events that type of thing so uh so so far so good that's know. a good thing i was at crush one year um, in years past it's really an extraordinary thing to witness i mean what goes into the bottle and i say that very often on this show i mean we really should pay much more for the work that you do um and that leads me to want to share a bit about your career path because you've had this enthusiasm for making wine and making wine at Jaylor for a lot of years. This is your first and only career, correct? Well, uh, no, no, I actually um, 
started uh, you went through UC Davis as as a you know college student right. and through the wine program there. That's what and I thought. I have my degree in winemaking, um, but I also uh, obtained a degree in chemical engineering. So I actually oh. uh, sort of sort of played hooky for about ten years. Um, oh, who knew? Uh, yeah, and and did biotech in the in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, but uh, was still. Uh, uh, Immersed in wine culture, making you know, making wines uh, with with my friends. I guess what we today call garage wines or garage east wines. Um, and then um, after that decade was up, yeah, I think the the wine industry was calling me back. Oh, and for so, sure. Uh, so I've been uh, here making wine past Robles for about uh, I guess since two thousand. Can you talk about the varietals that you grow and blend at JLOR, please? And the appellations as well. St. Helena, Monterey, Paso Robles, right? Right, yeah. So so the, the JLOR, the, the way that, you know, the historical trajectory really started in, in Monterey with Jerry Lore's plantings in 1972 in Monterey, where he planted cool cli- climate varieties like Riesling and Chardonnay alongside uh, uh, Bordeaux varieties like Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, that that and it turned out it was just much too cold in Monterey. Mm-hmm. So so in the early '80s he purchased some property up in St. Helena in Napa Valley. Um, uh, he still owns that property today, and we produce a Cabernet Sauvignon wine and Sauvignon Blanc from that property. But then later in the '80s he, he really uh, uh, set up a, a larger operation in Paso Robles, um, just south of Monterey, um, which is an ideal area for Bordeaux varieties. So. Um, and, and that's really my day job is looking after all the reds that we grow in Pastorables. Um, and we have a winery here as well. Where we're producing, um, you know, the infamous uh, Hilltop Cabernet. Um, that's my favorite. Oaks Cabernet. Yes. And, 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 uh, and um, we are celebrating Merlot month, so we have a couple of Merlot-based products. We have Los Osos Merlot. Um, and uh, also our Cuvée Palm, which is uh, meant to uh, emulate a Pomerol approach to uh, uh, Bordeaux Red. We're swirling and sipping winemaker Steve Peck, you and me, back right after the break. to National Merlot Month. Winemaker of J-Lor Vineyards and Wines, Steve Peck, is here. I think you've brought a new meaning to Merlot. We saw Merlot have its resurgence from sideways, right? And uh, Merlot had its day in the sun once again, and I believe it's cyclical. But Merlot is back and stronger than ever, and I believe that it's winemakers like you that have really put that finesse into Merlot that have... uh, created that once again resurgence and the appreciation for the Merlot grape, in fact. Can I go back a moment, Steve? Because I would love for you to define cuvee. You have a cuvee program at JLOR that I don't think everyone knows enough about. And it is a tremendous talent and challenge to accomplish blends or this term cuvee, right? Derived from the French wine term. The term cuvee translates roughly to the word blend, and uh, at Jaylor, it's actually an entire tier of wines mm-hmm. um, um, that a category of wines where we actually have three different 
cuvées that we produce, um, and they are our m- most expensive red wines at, at the winery. So they're our, our top tier. Um, there are three wines in that set. One is a uh, right bake blend called Cuvée Palm, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, meant to be a Palmeral style, meaning that the blend is, is um, uh, Merlot dominant. There's another right bank blend called Saint E, which is a Santa Million style, which is a Cabernet Franc dominated variety. And the third is left bank, which is uh, we call it Cuvée Pau, P-A-U, which is sort of shorthand for Poyac, which is Cabernet Sauvignon dominated blend. Mm. And these are again, these are at the the you know the top of our portfolio. Um, they're, they're, they show up at the finest restaurants across the country. These are wines that uh, are sizable, they're ageable, they're collectible, um, and, and really are for the enthusiast who really um, um, has passion for finding the best that we can offer, but also somebody who has the patience to let those wines age if they really want to enjoy um, what, they, what they can uh, do for you. And what is the life of those wines? That's a question that I think is asked very often. How long should a a wine connoisseur or novices alike lay down these bottles? And do you wait for a special occasion or life is short, right? (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. And so, um, you know, I I, kind of put aging in two categories. One is, is this wine um, going to improve with age and and um, or is this wine simply a wine that I can hold uh, mm. over time and and not necessarily waiting for it to improve and I think um, um, our our uh, standard tiers of wine we we kind of suggest that they're really uh, um, designed to be consumed in the first year or two after after they hit the market um, so. Um, uh, and and that's what we try to do with most of our whether it's wines that are really targeting a retail audience or or more of a restaurant audience. Right. When that when that bottle we pick up that bottle off the shelf or off the menu that it's ready to go and it's really going to look good. Those wines should hold, you know, five to eight years, but they're they're not dependent on age to improve. Now at the cuvee level, you know, it takes a little more investment on part of of the consumer. Where these wines really are intended uh, to have some ageability and will uh, develop secondary uh, characteristics that will actually improve the, the you know the flavor of the wine over the course of you know five to eight years, and then they then they then fall into that hold category as well, where where again they might hold for another five years, but they're not necessarily going to improve. Congratulations once again on the extraordinary accolade and accomplishment of being honored as winemaker of the year. Um, it is no doubt apparent in the J. Lore Vineyards and Wines Red Wines, which we know you are at the helm of. And I very much commend you as well. I've always been um, very admiring of J. Lore's commitment to sustainability. Uh, you have a very sustainable approach to farming and producing wines that is good for the environment and the community and uh, the employees as well. And I think that is what has made you, in part, an industry leader. You can learn more about J.Lor Vineyards and Wines offerings and Steve's winemaking at J.Lor, J-L-O-H-R dot com. So cheers to that. And don't touch your dial because there's more fabulous food and fine wine in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. 
Feeding your soul every Sunday, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Fitness expert Lisa Lin says that life is not going to change, but you can change how you approach life. And oh, how I love that quote of hers. As Halloween approaches and the holidays come into clear view, the foods that we crave are lurking everywhere. But my good friend and our resident fitness expert, Lisa Lin, has an 80-20 plan to combat the cravings and still satisfy your sweet tooth. Celebrity fitness and metabolic nutrition expert Lisa Lin is the founder of Lin Fit Nutrition and the author of the award-winning The Metabolism Solution. Lisa is often appearing on shows like Dr. Oz and more to share her workouts, her insight, and her belly fat weight loss tips. And I'm always thrilled when she stops by to whip us back into shape. If you stay tuned for the next 10 minutes, you will learn how to enjoy a few treats without gaining an ounce. Hi, Lisa. I'm glad you're back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, of course. Okay, it is the holiday season. And mind you, I mean, I love that you're a foodie, and I'm not going to lie. I can't wait to wear a sweater again. Yeah, me neither. Really, I mean, not only because it's a change of wardrobe, but to cover up a little bit. It's a double-edged sword, though. So, with all the cravings, what is the 80-20 rule? You know, most people think they're, this is such an overly legalistic society lately, like we're <laughs> pendulum swingers. We're yes. 100% perfect on our diet. Or we swing the pendulum completely to the left and we're completely off down in the embankment. And the truth is you are allowed a budget of 20% in your diet to include off foods, the foods you probably live for. Yeah, the ones we love. Okay, I believe, because you've taught me everything in moderation, I have three bites of chocolate cake. It satisfies. I feel like I indulge. It's chocolatey and delicious. That's that 80-20, right? It's giving in to a little bit of what we want so that you don't sit down and eat the entire chocolate cake. Oh, I have even better news for you. It gets better than that. The <laughs> truth is, if you eat like according to what your goal is, so I'm way above 40, hitting the other side, um, my metabolism wants to go backward every day. So if every day I get up and I have that metabolic boosting protein shake for breakfast, yes. I don't need a breakfast, a meal in between. Go into lunch with a nice leafy green salad and some, a few shrimp. Keep it really light and lean. That feeds my metabolism and boosts it. And that's really how we're all supposed to eat. If we live our lives that way, notice I didn't mention lots of carbs or fats in there. The truth is we're, our metabolism gets burning so fast that we actually create room to cheat a little bit and get away with it. So what's your cheat magic? Well, your cheat could be, I don't want to say just about anything you want, because I, you know, was certainly one of those people who took that to the limit. (laughs) took me four days to fix it. It's not supposed to be like that. The truth is, whatever you're craving, whether it's pizza, everybody has their thing. Some people, it would be two glasses of wine. Mm -hmm. I would be right at the dessert. You can keep the wine, you can have the pizza. Of course, I want it all. But I would rather have dessert, and so I would live on my plan, eat what I want, and then have that dessert about one to two meals a week. And here's the secret, though. So say you go Monday through Thursday. It's Thursday night, and you want to have that piece of cake you're dreaming for. If you have it and you jump back on the wagon the next day for another four days, you're not going to see that hurt your weight loss at all. In fact, it could Speed it up. Okay, then on the topic of speeding it up, this I think is a very interesting concept and one that I would love to know your opinion on. I have often heard that after like a good workout or a a long run or a walk or, you know, really good exercise, 
you can cheat at that time because your metabolism is working harder and that it might be the the best time to indulge. Absolutely. And the truth is that that's probably even better to do right before you work out. Okay. Fuel your car, take your car on the road, and the odds are that you're going to pretty much burn that off during your workout and maybe Hmm. even go further. And so um, if there's ever going to be an ideal time to cheat, I would say first go to before your workout. If you missed it and it just didn't happen and you went after, that would be next the next time because your metabolism is elevated. One of my workouts, um, people swear they lose weight right while in the room. It doesn't work that fast just between me and the wall. But um, if you do that, your metabolism's elevated for at least 24 hours after when you do like a high-intensity training. And nothing scary. Everybody can do it. She is our resident fitness guru. And who doesn't want a fitness expert who loves a Tootsie Roll in her pocket for just you never know when. She is Lisa Lynn, and you can learn more at lynnfit.com. 80-20 rule until we see you again here back before the holidays, right, Lisa? I can hardly wait. Thank you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of culinary conversation. I hope that I satisfied your cravings and that you'll tune in every Sunday for gastronomic inspiration and insight into the wide world of food. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the hour. You might have thought in the past of breadcrumbs from a container or a bag or that, you know, leftover stale bread on the counter, ground fine and used to crust a chicken breast. But breadcrumbs are actually experiencing an elevated resurgence with chefs across the country making new, unique, and textural styles. So my last bite this week is to inspire you to break bread for irresistible crunch and fabulous flavor, make your own breadcrumbs from a rye bread. Yes, garlic and herb laden breadcrumbs made from a, a half a loaf of country style rye bread that you've cut into cubes and toasted in the oven, then crumbled up into bigger chunks than that fine traditional breadcrumb and toasted in a saute pan with olive oil and butter, fresh rosemary and thyme and crushed garlic. They are so good. They get golden and caramelized and you can use them for just about anything. The new elevated breadcrumb made from scratch at home is perfect in a salad because you get croutons in every bite. Uh, Sprinkled over a bowl of pasta for texture or just eaten out of hand as a cocktail snack. Yes, they are that delicious. I will post my recipe for garlic and herb rye breadcrumbs on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen for you to steal. And I will meet you here next Sunday as the delicious conversation continues. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well.